Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing, my friend? Hey, well, I'm here. I'm excited to talk about these texts with you. There's a lot of great material in just these two chapters. There really is, and we don't happen to have any news, so let's see if we can manage to keep this episode under an hour just talking about two chapters. Before we dive into it, though, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So Derek, do you want to give us any, I guess, historical, literary, or theological context to these two chapters before we dive into the content? No, I think we can just dive into the content, but just remembering that the Book of Mormon was preserved for the 19th century and beyond. We've got some lessons for our day here, and that's kind of what Mormon and Moroni preserved this whole record for, Mm. is for us. Got you. So uh, with that, what we're going to be talking about, this is Alma 30 and 31. What the the, the highlights of these chapters, I suppose, are the uh, lessons about Korahor the Antichrist and also about the apostate Zoramites. So I'm very interested to hear what you will have to say, Derek. I just want to say that this is one of the most intriguing stories in the whole Book of Mormon for me. I have research privileges at the Boston Public Library where I can go into the special collections and and look through. And they have an original 1830 copy of the Book of Mormon at the Boston Public Library. And so I went in and and they let me look at it. I could read through it and thumb through the pages. Part of what I was looking at was, were there any notes in the margins? And there weren't any. So, you know it wasn't in a Mormon family because they would have had highlights all over it and little stickers and everything, (laughs) but it had been in libraries for basically 200 years. I wanted to read a cool story in the original 1830 Book of Mormon, and the story that I picked was uh, this Korahor story, just because I thought there's, there's a lot of cool stuff here. In this space where you have religious freedom among the Nephites, Korahor comes up and starts teaching these heretical doctrines and then asks for a sign, doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't believe in God, and says things like, well, death is the end, there's no afterlife, you can do whatever you want. Korhor even seduced people into sexual sins as well. And in the end, he gets his sign, and then he, uh, well, he ends up getting trampled to death. And even, even then, there's no real legal punishment for him. He never gets imprisoned or, or fined or anything. He just gets these sort of natural punishments for his unbelief rather than a legal punishment. Now, let me tell you about this beyond the block thing because I really want to empower our listeners to do some of this work on their own, right? We don't want people to be dependent on us. At least I don't. And I and one of the most important <laughs> interpretive tools that I can give the listeners is this. At the kernel of every heresy is a truth. Ooh. A truth that gets either distorted or exaggerated in some way. Okay. So whenever you, you as the listener, come upon a heresy or some distortion of doctrine, try to think about what is the truth that's at the core of that heresy. Because this can help us identify why heresies are so tempting and seductive. Mm-hmm. It can also help us empathize with and build bridges with those who hold these beliefs. Ugh. 
so that we can I know you don't like empathy I but don't. but this is a, this is this is the whole Christ like thing we got to uh, reach people where they are uh, right okay yeah. even if they are oppressors I don't I still don't like that but I I'm going to hear you out Okay. I, I well, you don't have to. This. You don't. Ha- you don't have to like it. Okay. I don't. But like, that's most of the gospel. I don't have to like it. I just gotta. I just gotta fall in line occasionally. <laughs> well, I like. Well, I like the gospel because because I've been on the, I've been on the end where I've needed the gospel. Right. Oh, we've all. So, we all need yeah. the gospel. It's just. It's not always easy to follow. Is what I'm trying to say. Like some parts of it are harder than others. And I think this is another strategic tool because if you go up to people with a door in their face, they become defensive, they won't listen to you, they, they're immediately triggered to, to put up all these defenses, right? And, okay. they're, and when people are threatened, see, as an educator, I know this, when, when, ki- when children are threatened and scared, they don't learn. Their brain is not in, in the whole prefrontal cortex mode. It's in the, you know, just bare survival mode. The amygdala is screaming and, and taking over their whole brain, and mm-hmm. you can't learn when you're threatened. So when we diffuse people's aggression by sympathizing with what's at the core of their heresy, we can actually have a conversation, right? Okay, yeah. We can get a foot in the door. But anyway... So we can see some of this in Korahor's statements because when you take Korahor's statements out of context, some of them actually seem kind of true. Right. Like the thing about, you know, it's hard to to judge people for their sins of their fathers, right? No mm-hmm. one's judged, you know, that we can kind of believe. Right. Um, it's practically one of our articles of faith. Yeah, it is. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we saw this earlier with Nehor too in Alma chapter one, I think it is. Where Nehor was saying, you know, look, there's there's grace and mercy for everyone, and and you know we can kind of get on board with that too. Mm-hmm. But let's look at some of Korahor's heresies. One is the difficulty he has in believing things without proof. Mm-hmm. But Korahor rightly points out that having a miraculous sign would seem to make it easier to believe. And in fact, there's many times in Scripture, both the Book of Mormon and the Bible, where people believe based on a sign. Like, look at the Doubting Thomas story. He gets a sign, right? Yeah, he does. Another one of Korahor's heresies centers around the truth that warns us against the traditions of our fathers, right? This mm-hmm. can happen in in the Latter-day Saint world. This has happened throughout Christianity where people get too attached to the traditions of their fathers that they're not open to what's new. Mm-hmm. So Korahor mm-hmm. rightly points out the risk of people being too dependent on tradition. But let's let's talk about this uh, this believing in signs thing. Yeah, okay. And it gets to one of the most important tools that Alma uses, and we can use this tool too. So instead of debating with Korahor about these invisible things right from the start, the first thing that Alma does is discuss something that can be seen and has proof. Mm-hmm. What is that? It's the fact that Alma and his, uh, his associates do not get paid for their ministry. And this is known to the whole community. Mm-hmm. So if Korahor is wrong, even about these things that can be seen, yeah, such as this you know, accusation, about? yeah, yeah, such as this accusation that Alma is preaching to get gain, right? Then how much more likely is it that Korahor is wrong about things that cannot be seen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can see this in let's see what verses. This is in um, verses thirty-two through thirty-five of of chapter thirty. You get this whole, that is really Alma's first talking point. It's not debating about God. It's about, 
look, you're wrong about even these things that are known, right? Facts. Mm-hmm. Ooh, let's talk about people disputing known facts. Oh, we've got a problem with that in, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in, our, in our world. But anyway, yeah. let's talk about how this impacts our advocacy for LGBT lives. So right. instead of starting with a debate around things we can't see, like the abstract meaning of Hebrew and Greek words, or invisible rules of ritual purity, other th- contexts from the ancient world that we may not have access to. Instead of starting with that, we should start with what can be seen, mm. the joy and passion of LGBT families flourishing in a supportive community mm. and the reality of our lived experience. That is a fact, right? Mm-hmm. You can see the fruits of the spirit in our lives. And there's no invisible argument that can prevail against our visible dignity and excellence. I like the idea of, like when you said meet people where they are when it comes to people who might be trying to take away your humanity as an LGBTQ person, I was curious as to where you were going to go with that. But I really like this idea of taking something that's already out there, something that's already discernible and tangible to point to and be like, this is evidence that we are entitled to our humanity. I mean, I know how we both feel about not trying to debate people on our humanity, but this is kind of like a neat little Mm -hmm. moment where we can say to ourselves, you do realize there's evidence against this very thing you are trying to assert that we can both plainly see. You know what I'm saying? I always think it's best when you could kind of use uh, your opponent's words against them, kind of like a like a verbal judo, I suppose, if that's the right mm. discipline mm. I'm thinking of. So I, I like this idea a lot because you're simultaneously building a bridge, meeting someone where they are, while abiding a standard that they set. My, my only thing, I suppose, that I feel to say is that even when the standards that they set are met, that standard can always be changed or that... Those, mm, those goal poles can yeah. always be pushed back. And this is something that I've experienced as someone who has made an effort of most of my adolescence and some of my adult life to abide white standards of respectability so that people could not be scared of me or so that people could respect me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I told you, I think I, a long time ago, I don't remember what episode it was on, but we talked briefly about how President Barack Obama ultimately was the reason I stopped abiding white standards of respectability because he literally did everything right. You know, he was everything that my mother, my Mm -hmm. own mother was raising me to be and more. Like he was intelligent, he was charming, he was attractive, he was well-spoken, went to the best schools, was actually the first black uh, Harvard Review editor or whatever that publication was. And people were still calling him the N-word, you know what I'm saying? So I don't want to get I don't want to get too far off base from what you're trying to bring to the conversation. But that is my only hesitance to embrace this idea is simply that if even if we do Mm -hmm. meet a standard that has been plainly set by somebody who's trying to argue with us or debate with us, that can always change. And we can all we can actually see Korahor doing that later in the story. After Alma does this, he's going to demand a sign like he is he is literally trying to pick things or make demands that he feels that Alma cannot uh, accommodate. So I know you're going to get to that later. I'm sure you're going to get to that later, but that's what I wanted to uh, bring out real quick. Yeah. And I think part of this is, is Alma trying to convince Korihor is, or is he trying to 
do this for the sake of the public who's listening in because yeah, the way it's yeah. narrated i think there's a large number of people who are hearing the accusation and alma needs to say something right and that's the strength right that's the strength of what alma's doing and what i feel like a lot of people who are advocates are doing they engage these kinds of conversations not necessarily for the benefit of the people that they are engaging, but for the sake of the people who are listening in on the conversation, because those minds can be changed and they can also yeah. see what is happening and what is the, the way that Alma's logic is being engaged. You know what I'm saying? I do feel there's a power, even in engaging people in bad mm-hmm. faith like Korahor was, for the sake of the people who may be listening to the conversation. So I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, let me get to another one of these interesting heresies that Korahor has. One of the most relevant ones to our day is in Alma 30, verse 17. Okay. And here's what Korahor says. He said, and listen for the kernel of truth that's in this, if, if you can find one. Okay. Korahor says, every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength. And whatsoever man did was no crime. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This is basically the all lives matter position. Oh, it's the idea. Okay. It's the idea that no population requires special concern. It's the idea that injustices in society are just natural and we should accept them. It's the idea that we should not intervene when we see those in- injustices. Mm. That everyone should fend for themselves. That everyone is equal, all lives matter, and all lives should be treated the same. That's literally what he's saying in different words. Mm. That just let the course run and everyone's going to prosper if they prosper and everyone's going to fail if they fail. And if there's any systemic injustice, well, whoops, too bad for them. <laughs> yeah. This is literally, Korahor is teaching the all lives matter doctrine. Well, how about that? I, yeah. yeah, I would not have thought of that, Derek. I'm so glad you said well, that. <laughs> and you know, what he says reminds me of Thrasymachus's definition of justice in Plato's Republic. This is one of the dialogue participants in this, in Plato's text here. And he said that justice is the advantage of the stronger, or that might makes right. And that's really kind of getting to the core of what the All Lives Matter is about, because they're not focusing on where the problem is but here's the pro- here's my my thing is if these people are saying all lives matter why aren't they mad too mm. when black people die mm. because they're just betraying their hypocrisy that their statement isn't about affirming all lives it's mm-hmm. about affirming the status quo correct and not dealing with the problem but anyway now do- James, don't get mad at me, but there is a partial truth at the kernel of the all lives matter heresy. I was looking for and, it, but yeah, I would I would like to hear this. And and that's why it is such a tempting poison, you know, because people can distort that truth and exaggerate it and weaponize it against intervening in society in defense of black lives and black dignity. The kernel of truth about all lives matter is that technically it's 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 true. It's right. been used as currency now as a response to Black Lives Matter, so we obviously should not say it anymore. Mm-hmm. But there is a truth that all lives, oh, I, I feel so disgusting even saying it. <laughs> because to it say it- It sounds like you're saying it for the first time, Derek. <laughs> no, like, no, I mean, like, it's it's who says it and how. See, that gets back to what, what the whole problem is with Korahor. It's not so much what he's saying, but 
what is the context? And he's using it mm-hmm. in the context of denying Christ. And that's the same there thing with the Zoramites. Mm-hmm. Some of the Zoramites say things that are true too, but it's in the context of denying Christ. And we'll get to that later. Okay. Good. Thank you for clarifying. I, I just want to let you know I wasn't worried. I, I'm sure you had a good place that you were going. I was waiting for the kernel of truth, and that was more or less what I suspected. So thank you for sharing that, and thank you for easing me into it. I do appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> but, and that's my point about why heresies are so seductive, because Satan wouldn't tempt us with anything that doesn't have any complete you know, it's complete falsehood. Like right. no one would b- believe something that's a complete and obvious falsehood. He mm-hmm. always deals in half truths or distortions or exaggerations. Right. He even misquotes scripture. Like look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew four right. and Luke four. Right. You know, Satan is is a little bit is a little bit smart, right? He's got a he's got a good brain, as as uh, <laughs> someone else says. He's got nice. a see that, that so that, that's the kind of jokes I need, Derek. Those are those are brilliant. Yeah, I'm I'm really disappointed that on our business cards you did not put that I was a co-host and a comedian. Be, okay, I can't have people confused about your titles, man. You get one title. <laughs> Don't want to confuse folks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now I'd like to compare. Let's talk a little bit about the heroes and villains in the Book of Mormon because so many yeah. people want to want to read like, oh, which team are you on? And they mm-hmm. automatically read them into Captain Moroni or, mm-hmm. or Alma or, you know, that's who we are. And yeah. then the others are the, the who our enemies are. Mm-hmm. And it's much more complicated than that. I think a rich, close reading of the Book of Mormon really complicates this Disney-fied. You know, when I first read the Book of Mormon, I thought to myself, this is so black and white. Like it's designed <laughs> to, to make you empathize with one side and not the other. But right. when you look at it, there's a lot of clues that are left by the editors that make you realize, oh, the Lamanites, they have a point too. Mm-hmm. And there's flaws in our heroes. And here, yeah. I'm going to point out maybe a little bit of a flaw in Alma the Younger here. Okay. Because I'd like to compare the account of the conversion of Alma the Younger back in Mosiah 27 with this incomplete conversion of Korahor in Alma 30. Let's okay. look at some of these commonalities. Both persecuted the church and led many astray. Mm-hmm. Both were arrogant and entitled. Both were open unbelievers. And both received a miraculous sign from God that led so- to some kind of change. You know, Alma the Younger had this angel and the voice from heaven and an earthquake. Like, what more sign could you want? Right. And in fact, Alma received two signs, the appearance of this angel and then being physically incapacitated later where he, you know, f- fell as though he were dead, right, for a while. Uh-huh. And then also both Alma and Korahor were struck dumb. Mm-hmm. So let's look at this because Alma, Alma the Younger is now the judge in this case, the one who's who's deprived oh, Korahor. Shoot. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, look at this. So, so, he, so yeah. Korahor, let me just find that verse. Korahor begs for another chance in writing because his uh, he, he can't, can't to speak anymore. Right. But he says in verses 52 to 53, like, this is his confession. Like, he realized, okay, he admits that he's wrong. And then in verse 54, he begs that Alma should pray to God that this curse of, of being speechless could be taken from him. Mm-hmm. But then Alma said, no. And I find that really, so, really yeah. interesting. Okay. Like, is that Christ-like? Is that what a what Christ would have done? I I don't know. I mean, it's... This is this tricky, reminds man. 
because like yeah. I, I just wanted to say like the tricky part about uh Korhor's confession is he knew he always knew that there was a god like he said that he always knew there was a god you know what i'm saying like he knew better and he decided against that anyway he lets he let satan seduce him anyway we we don't really have any editorial knowledge of what you know what alma the younger and the sons of mosiah mm-hmm. were like did they actually know better did they actually know that there was a god and they kn- knew of a jesus christ did did paul you know what i'm saying that still kind of begs the question why is alma in a place to where he gets to be the one to make that decision how mm-hmm. does he how does he know that like he he says this he he's like if i were to heal you if i were to remove this curse from you you would just go right back to spouting more falsehoods do we get to take alma at his word for that we we kind of have to in order to justify what happens to korahor that is a little bit tricky yeah it's tricky because jesus was more than willing to forgive people more than once he says you know you got to forgive people 70 times seven right this uh-huh. this whole giving people chances but what's interesting is that alma refuses to consider that the same grace that was offered to him could redeem Korahor, mm. right? Like if, if Korahor got the same chance, maybe Korahor could have been redeemed and his conversion could be complete. And you know, the the narration really leads us to sympathize with Korahor because he says, well, yeah, he starts out saying, well, I was deceived and I knew it was a lie. But I, as I kept saying it, and, and then I started to believe it. And by that time, you know, he's really caught up in it. And I, right. I really think that then he's kind of in the same position as Alma the Younger and the other, and the sons of Mosiah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of Jesus again, this reminds me of the parable of the two debtors in Matthew chapter 18. Okay. Now, you know, one debtor owed 10,000 talents and his debt was forgiven. But then he, in turn, immediately forgot the grace on which he depended and he did not forgive his fellow servant of some of just 100 denarii. And just for people who may not know, a talent is about 20 years of a common subsistence wage earner. And that's 10,000 talents. And a talent is, you know, 20 years labor. And a denarius is about one day of a subsistence wage. So that's just 100 days wages. Sure. And okay. And this guy had this insanely large debt and it was forgiven, but then someone else owed him just a small fraction of that. And even though this other guy begged, have patience with me and I will pay thee all, that's that's in verse 29, the first servant didn't do it. Hmm. And I mean, that's just awful. Now, Korahor admitted he was wrong and begged Alma for another chance. And it, and it seems like Alma is like those cartoon characters that saw off the branch they are standing on. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And then they float in the air for just a few seconds and then they fall, which is not how gravity works. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> what, what do you think about Alma here? Because there's some complexity in his character. Do we, do we identify with Alma? Do we identify with Korahor? Like, what do we do with this? That is interesting because there are certainly different times where we could easily identify with either one of them like on Korahor's side people that continue committing the same kinds of sins even though we know better but yet still receive grace after grace and opportunities for forgiveness and then of course people like Alma where we are not willing to extend grace to others that we have received ourselves I definitely have been in both of those situations and because of that I don't really feel like I'm in a position to judge Alma or Korahor. The best I can hope for is to take Alma at his word that Korahor would in fact keep 
trying to deceive people if he was given his uh, speech back is that really for him to judge because well that's the thing no the answer is no like unless he is and you know this is alma's position as the chief priest or whatever whatever they're calling the high priest of the church like that is technically his position but also at the same time like alma's still just a dude he's still just a man you know what i'm saying and the atonement is still real and the atonement is about giving people a chance that's the whole you know people are punished for taking advantage of the atonement but that's what it's for right (laughs) people are punished for taking advantage of the atonement but that's what it's for (laughs) yeah yeah man you are you are right it's an interesting paradox and i wanted something really interesting we might ask what made the difference between these two stories and one thing that i noticed two stories are you talking about alma's story versus alma and in in korhor yeah and one of the difference between alma alma and korhor is that alma was supported by the community Mm. right so his father alma the other alma alma the the alma the father prayed for him and loved him and i think the community numbered the unbelievers and had them in mind right and the interesting thing about the book of mormon here is that the narration identifies alma as a child of alma the elder and identifies korhor as a child of the devil look at um the last verse in the chapter Mm. and it says that the devil will not support his children at the last day Mm. Like, isn't that really, really interesting? It's like naming the identity. Just seeing people differently leads to a different level of community support and leads to a different outcome in whether people have a chance at being part of the covenant people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that gets to what I was saying earlier about this uh, statement about the devil, child of the devil is we've got a name that Mormon, as an editor-historian, intrudes with moral generalizations from from time to time. Yeah. And we can see some of his editorial seams as he stitched his sources together. Right. And so, in part, some of the contrast between these two stories can be explained by the the hypothesis that Mormon used different sources Uh for these narratives, right? That he may have drawn on one source that was really sympathetic with Alma and another source that was really critical with Korahor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we still have to ask, why did he select both of these texts to be included in his abridgment? (laughs) Questions that need answers. Yeah. And, And we can see how he... Mormon, how Mormon concludes each of these episodes with a moral generalization. For Alma and his friends, at the end of that chapter, it says... And thus they were instruments in the hands of God in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, to the knowledge of their Redeemer. That's Mosiah 27, 36. Mm-hmm. And then for Korahor, and thus we see, you can always tell some of these moral generalizations when you see, and thus we see. Right. <laughs> and thus we see the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord. And let me just pause there to say this when we have this word perverteth, that gets back to what I'm saying about a kernel of truth that gets distorted or exaggerated in some way, right? Right. So it says, and thus we see the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord, and thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. Yeah, so that's our our moral lesson that we learn but we've also got this moral lesson in in Alma, uh, in Alma's case too, because his conversion from 
apostasy and unbelief allowed him to be in a position to bring many to the knowledge of truth. This is kind of like Paul, right? Paul in Acts. Yeah. And Korihor could have been that too. Like, how do we know? How did Alma know? Christ can do the impossible. I don't think that anyone is beyond hope, right? I don't know what, what to do with all this. <sighs> I don't know, man. I don't know. And this is this is that part of me I was talking to you about earlier, about how I can see myself in Alma on occasion. Sometimes, at, at least when it comes to the people I interact with on occasion, I don't know who is beyond the grasp of having some kind of compassion or feeling some kind of empathy. Like I just don't know sometimes because some people seem to be so committed to their to their devil's work or to their ignorance that you know you you, you can't help but feel like all you can do is give up because you know let, let's go back to like Alma fifteen when Alma and Amulek encounters Yezrum. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like Yeah, he got a chance. He got a chance. Alma gave Zeezrom a chance. So I would like to believe that Alma is able to discern who can get a chance because Zeezrom also kind of confessed. Like he confessed to being in the wrong as well. He confessed to knowing better and he got a second chance. Alma and Amulek were able to discern that he deserved a second chance. And Zeezrom similarly asked them to remove that curse and to heal or to heal him rather. And Zeezrom went on to become a great missionary. In fact, in the next chapter of Alma, uh, Alma 31 anyway, we read that he's one of the missionaries that go to reclaim the right, apostate yeah. Zoramites. So I don't know, man. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to try to measure because Alma clearly is capable of giving people second chances. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do so here, and I don't have an answer for that reason. Well, you know, here's here's one of the textual ironies is at the heart of giving Korahor a potential another chance is this idea of agency. That yeah, you might he might mess up again. Uh-huh. But at least he has the chance to mess up. And because that gives him the chance to do what's right. This is this is really as fundamental as the choice in the Garden of Eden, right? And I think this whole concept of agency is woven into the textual material because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 30, it's framed by this idea of religious freedom here um, mm-hmm. among the Nephites. That there was no law that criminalized belief. You know, right. crimes were, were criminal, but there was no law that punished a man's belief. And then everyone had the equal liberty to believe or not believe, which is really what we face here in a modern democracy, right? And Korahor certainly didn't deserve to die because of what he was doing. Yeah, where where were the All Lives Matter people when Korahor got <laughs> trampled? Yeah, where was Korahor's followers then? I don't know. Yeah, man. so I think this concept of agency like means that people deserve a chance to mess up because that's the only way they have a chance to do the right thing. They deserve multiple chances and, to mess up. And, and Alma really deprived Korahor of a chance to tap into the atonement. Maybe Alma was right that he would have fallen again and, and deceived people, but there's a sense in which the gospel hinges on people having that chance to do what's wrong. Let's talk about the um, how this connects with the Zoramites. Yeah. That's real interesting. What, what's I, your reaction to the, to the Zoramite theology and their prayer? Well, if I may first, uh, Derek, just kind of go back to a theme that you brought up about who we see ourselves in, like how we identify with the heroes 
or the villains in the Book of Mormon, we are certainly conditioned to identify with heroes over villains, even when we are more like the villains than the heroes. And I want to tell you a little bit about how I came to this understanding very slowly. Do you remember the movie Dumbo? A long time ago, I saw it. Yeah, yeah a long I remember time ago. Dumbo. Like, this is actually a long time ago for me as well. I remember being super young. I was in elementary school and watching Dumbo for the first time among my peers in like first grade or kindergarten. I don't remember what it was, but you know. You know how it was in our day when like the teachers would wheel in the big bucks TV on the thing. <laughs> you knew it was about to be a good day. And that day we were watching Dumbo. But th- there's something I remember very powerfully about watching Dumbo with my peers. Mm-hmm. It was when the kids that made fun of me and the kids that bullied me, they cheered when Dumbo got the better of those people who were tormenting him or like those other uh, people mm-hmm. in the movie that were tormenting him and they jeered when the people who were bullying Dumbo also got the upper hand on him and I just remember being so confused and I couldn't articulate it at the time but basically what what was like really messing my mind up I was like how do you guys not see that's you 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 guys are the bullies y'all are the crows that's y'all you're the mean people you're the you're the bullies you're the tormentors that's y'all And then this same theme came up to me uh, many years later when the movie 42 came out, that Jackie Jackie Mm -hmm. Robinson movie. I don't know if you saw that, but I also remember I was in Utah at the time that that movie came out, and I saw it in theaters, also in Utah. I I watched the movie in theaters, and I remember white people in particular telling me how much they felt for Jackie Robinson and rooted for him during the movie and how bothered they were by the treatment he got And I felt that even as I watched the movie in theaters, I could sense, I could hear, I could physically hear the discomfort of the white people around me. It was palpable. But a similar experience to what I experienced watching Dumbo so many years ago happened again. The people, white people in particular who watched 42, they identified more with Jackie than they did with the white people that ridiculed him and called him the N-word. Again, I wanted to be like, but that's you. Mm-hmm. You white people yeah. are the white people. <laughs> like they actually look <laughs> like you and you'd likely be sharing space and opinions and ideas with them in the 40s. Do you not see yourself in them? Like that's all I could think to myself every time a white person came up to me like and this would just be so inappropriate. It would be like at work or at church and people would be like, "James, I saw 42 and gosh, I really felt for Jackie." I'm like, "Really though? Do you would you have back then? I I don't know." But this is more or less the thought process I had as I read through both Alma 30 and 31. I was like, how, how can we embrace and how do we embrace on occasion the doctrines and ideas of Korahor or the Zoramites? Do we harbor incorrect ideas? Like, look at, uh, let me get this open here. Like, look at these prayers. Look at this prayer from the Ramiumptum in Alma chapter 31. I believe this starts in about verse 15. Look at this. Look at this mess. Holy, holy God. We believe that thou art God. We believe that thou art holy. Thou wast a spirit. Thou art a spirit. Thou wilt be a spirit forever. Do we also harbor incorrect ideas of who God is, of what he is, 
and of what he can what he can do and what he can be like look at verse 16 holy god we believe that thou hast separated us from us from our brethren and we do not believe in the tradition of our brethren which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers but we believe that thou hast thou hast elected us to be thy holy children and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no christ thou hast elected us this is verse 17 now i think that we shall be saved whilst all around us are elected to be cast down to hell we thank thee that thou hast elected us that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren do we suppose ourselves better than others because of our beliefs do we ever suppose that all others are damned because they don't believe like we do or are members of our faith is there ever a time during our worship experience where we similarly take terms going up to some pulpit and affirming the same Mm, things perhaps even Previously, yeah. Do we go to church to affirm our beliefs and fellowship with each other only to return home and forget the purpose of all of it? Not praying, not mm. reading our scriptures, not engaging our theology or the community in meaningful ways for good as God would have us do? Do we not also freaking find ourselves boasting in our pride simply because of the identities we espouse or our membership in the church? Like I, I we're, we are not conditioned to think like this, Derek. Like you said earlier, we mm-hmm. it's it's very much like a Disney like a Disney thing. We are out here just always identifying ourselves with Alma rather than Korahor, with with Alma and Amulek and Zorm or not Zorm, Ziezrum and Omner and all those other folks who went to go see the see about the Zoramites. We identify with them far more often than we identify with the Zoramites who gosh like as i read through this chapter as i read just that prayer i was like oh my gosh this can really be us a lot of the time it it this this is a really good parallel because the zoramites worshiping god one day a week and then completely forgetting about god the rest of the week is like these white folks going to see 42 and getting it Mm -hmm. in the theater Mm -hmm. but then being all against Black Lives Matter the rest of the week. Yep. Like, that's where it comes down yep. to it, is are you living the thing that you learned yep. in that one special environment, mm-hmm. whether it's the theater or the Ramiumptum or yep. the our meeting houses? Yes, sir. That's it right there. That is it right there. Yeah. And, you know, here's what makes, what really makes the heresies of Korahor and the heresies of the Zormites problematic is not that they're complete falsehoods. It's that they are not completely rooted in Christ. See, mm-hmm. that's the commonality that they both, they both said there is no Christ and Christ was not at the center. And if Christ is not at the center, then all these other truths and partial truths and half-truths will be really distorted and they will have the wrong emphasis. See, that's the problem with the All Lives right. Matter right. is it's the wrong emphasis, the wrong mm-hmm. timing, the wrong focus, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, this should serve as a warning to all of us that no matter what truths we Christians may cling to, Mm -hmm. they will always be partial truths unless they are rooted in Christ. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that's what the meaning of that word antichrist was when we first encountered yeah. it in Alma chapter 30. Mm-hmm. Like uh, they encount- they defined antichrist. He began to preach unto the people against the prophecies which had been spoken by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. Like, do we not ourselves embrace antichrist tendencies when we do stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, thanks for pointing out that that's, 
the the real meaning of antichrist. Right, right. Because I'm tempted to see myself in that as well every now and again. Like, I'll be looking at some of the things I disagree with at church, and I'll be like, crap, am I falling away? Like, am I on the high road to apostasy, as some of these members say? Like, I try to mm-hmm. regularly hold myself in balance with, you know, the things that I believe and, you know, the, the church and whatnot. I try to make sure that I'm not on the high road to apostasy, but really to be antichrist is not to simply be at odds with the prophets or with the policies in the church it's to be against christ in essence and i don't think i'm being against christ when i advocate for more talk about racism or more harsh condemnations of racism when it comes to our leaders i don't think i'm out of the way i don't think i'm antichrist when i'm advocating for more equality and more opportunities more leadership roles and all everything that i does everything that I view to be my birthright for members of the LGBTQ community. I don't think I'm anti-Christ for doing that Mm -hmm. much. Yeah, and sometimes being Christ-like is overturning the tables in the temple. Yep, yep. That's that's sometimes, and that's that's really... Turning the tables over in the temple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's why, um, for more info about this, you can watch my teaching on Hebrews chapter 11 where I talked about Hebrew the, the faith heroes being among the margins and not really at the institutional and organizational center of right. the um, Israelite history. So right. all of our listeners go go watch my go find it. Well, we'll just go ahead and um, post it on the post it on the page. Yeah. But this this thing about Christ-centeredness can really help us focus on whether we are like you said on the road to apostasy or are, it's basically is this drawing you and the people around you closer to Christ? or or not Mm. um and i think this is why why the heresy of straight supremacy is so tantalizing in the church like i said about these heresies it's that not that they're complete falsehoods but they're not focused on christ and straight supremacy claims to be rooted in the concept of sexual purity and holiness (laughs) and right relationships and i am 100 percent on board with sexual purity and holiness and right relationships that's like that's like a duh issue right just look at how i i strive to ethically move throughout the world in my relationships with everyone you know so but without christ people will make an artificial distinction between same gender relationships and different gender relationships Mm. not recognizing that they can be equally pure and holy and fruitful in the spirit and respectful and consensual and committed right right it's only these these prejudices that make you even think that there's there's a there's a fundamental difference right and that drives people away from christ and so like i said straight supremacy has a kernel of truth in in it that they're they're trying to to lean on like i said this sexual purity and holiness Mm -hmm. but then they distort it by not having it laser focused on christ like that's what i love about paul's letter to the galatians and the inclusion of the gentiles here is he was laser focused on the gospel of jesus christ and that allowed amazing miraculous things to happen like the inclusion of the gentiles on their own terms yes sir so that's kind of all I had to say about these lessons. What cool, about, man. what do you think? No, no, like you, that's a perfect place to leave off of. And uh, I'm just glad you said this. That's a lovely way to cap off this discussion is by mm-hmm. talking about 
what it is to be an antichrist and to come closer to Christ. I, I think that's something, I, I think that encapsulates well what we're trying to do here on Beyond the Block. And yeah, I think that's a great place to leave off of. So before we oh, move- awesome. Yeah, before we move on to uh, some housekeeping items, just want to let you guys know that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or Lyceum.fm or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Derek, where can people find us? Yeah, you can find us at BeyondTheBlock.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yes, and speaking of them social medias we are still looking for a social media intern if you happen to know anyone or you yourself would be interested in helping our social media pages you know be more than just posting our content and stolen memes so mm-hmm. yeah reach out to us we would love to hear from you send us an email at beyond the block podcast at gmail.com and uh, you know we'll get you set up Also, in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of beyond the block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched our Glow page about a month and a half ago, I think. And basically, if you're willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. Those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback, ideas for the show, access our study notes, and a lot more. Like if you if you don't have any coins to throw at us, just share our Glow page on your socials and uh, you can still join our collaborator community. We have, you know, we've already reached our first milestone of covering our startup costs and making sure that our monthly costs are covered. We are moving on to bigger and better things soon. We'd like to be able to afford an editor among some other things. We're working on some other projects or at least talking about some other projects we'd like to be able to afford. Me and Derek have uh, occasionally talked about having a YouTube channel eventually, but obviously we can't do that unless we up our production value a little bit. So in order to get to those spots, uh, we rely on those contributions. So uh, yeah, just putting that out there. Thanks. I would also like to thank our donors. I just want to let our donors know that no amount of money will be able to improve my jokes. (laughs) Sorry. Actually, like if what do y'all want, I could use, we could just go ahead and buy Derek a book of dad jokes that he can just randomly spring Uh on me during the show. (laughs) But because, you know, that's basically Derek's brand of humor. In fact, I'm going to, let me go freaking, (laughs) there's got to be a dad joke book somewhere on Amazon. We could put them you dollars should, to good use. Yeah, but get me some comedy lessons. But uh, no, I think I'm beyond, I'm, I'm like Korhor, I'm beyond hope with this. <laughs> beyond hope. There we go. So yeah, thank you to our collaborators. Thank you to our new co- collaborators. We got another person, Derek, with an AOL email address. Like, where do y'all come from? Who is still using AOL email addresses <laughs> in 2020? Like, no shade, but, uh, like, I'm genuinely impressed. And this one doesn't have any numbers in it either. 
which just oh, tells wow. you how long these people have been around on the internet. Y'all are really the real y'all the real pioneers y'all the real mvps for real <laughs> hopefully when people start joining the collaborator group i can get some names so i can name you guys on the show next week but thank you guys and uh, a couple of y'all actually upped your contributions as well we want to thank y'all too and we'll go ahead and send y'all an email to properly thank you finally mm-hmm. we'd like to uh thank our friends tamara kemsley for editing the show and also david doyle for editing our transcripts this means a whole lot to us you know y'all making us sound good look good and making the stuff accessible to people did i miss anything derek nope that's it wonderful until we meet again next week everybody we will see you then see you then bye everyone